And I'm and each week we will malt, mash, ferment, and distill our way through the spirits of our past in the form of long-loved movies. And this week, wiggle your big toe. That's right, we are watching Kill Bill Volume 1 from 2003, directed by Quentin Tarantino. This is our first Tarantino flick on the show, is it not? It is, but Anthony... Are we going to just do Kill Bill Volume 1 and just leave it at that? Well, I mean, aren't we? I say, this week we do Volume 1 and do Volume 2 next week. Our first legitimate two-parter Memory Distillery episodes. Yep, uh, that is what we're going to do. We're going to watch Volume 1 this week. We will watch Volume 2 next week. And uh, the reason I'm glad that we're doing this is because... it. The story's told in such a way that you can't really have just one. Like, you you have to, if you're going to watch one, you have to watch both. You can't just, like, we couldn't start this on volume two and just go, all right, well, we're done. Yep, that's a Um, very good point. I mean, it it bears all the sort of Tarantino hallmarks. Like, you've got the cutaway scenes and the jump into the jump, you jump right into the middle of the story and... You know, all the little secret bits and all that stuff, but you had to wait for the sequel to come out to truly get all the story, and that's one thing that I really love about this movie or this pair of movies. Yeah, it's been it's been a while, and and I think we can kind of treat them each as individual movies with, of course, a continuing storyline. Um, and for me, it's been quite a while. I, I enjoy several of uh, Tarantino's movies, and there have been a couple that have fallen a little flat with me, but. Um, but this is one of the earlier ones that just really maybe just kind of have this wild appreciation. And I think part of it is just uh, the love I have for like old school martial arts movies and anime and like all these different, you know, s- styles and scenes that, you know, were brought and molded together. And I mean, from from my recollection, it just feels like one of his movies that is maybe the most ambitious when it comes to like compiling and compressing different styles and genres and ideas. Oh, absolutely. And it's, it's one of his best done movies in my opinion. Like he, yeah, he's got a lot of hits under his belt, but you're right. Like this is, it's very unique unto itself. I, I even the like the soundtrack, the soundtrack is so expertly inserted into this movie that it's, it's, it's just wonderful. It's funny we're we're you know fresh back from a little bit of a holiday break, ready to 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 jump back in the fray, and I have all these thoughts and ideas and questions, but I think they're really going to be best served for our you know second part of this episode here after we've actually watched the movie again. But yeah, like I this just stirs up a lot of ideas and feelings and and thoughts that I can't wait to solidify by rewatching because um, it's been gosh it's had to be over at least ten years since I've seen this. Uh, so yeah. I think it's been eight to ten for me. So yeah, it's been a while, and I have all these really great impressions of it, and and so I'm just wondering now that I've you know seen many movies, uh, many of his movie Quentin Tarantino's movies since then. Like, am I still going to think this is somewhere in my you know top two or three of his movies, or has maybe some of the magic worn down a bit? I don't know. Well, what do we have since then? We have Inglorious Bastards, we have Django Unchained, 
Um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which just came out. Uh, is that it? Well, you're the research person. Don't look at me. I, I can't keep I track of things like time. Get my fingers flying, I guess. I think that... Um, I think... Oh, Hateful Eight. Oh, yeah, Hateful Eight. But I don't think anything else... I think that's all that was between those. I think he named them all, or we named them all. Okay. I could be wrong. Uh, yeah, I... I think that's about right. So why don't we, uh, why don't we stop waiting and let's just go and do this thing. Let's go watch Kill Bill Volume One. Uh, if you guys want to watch along with us, it's on Netflix right now. It might be going to Hulu soon, or you probably have it in your personal library. So feel free to pause here and watch along with us. And when we come back, we're gonna discuss Kill Bill Volume One. You ready? Oh, I'm ready. Let's do it. Yeah. And we're back, everyone. So, so much to unpack here. Uh, There's some stuff that I missed in previous watchings that I totally picked up on this time. One thing in particular was uh, the way in which color changed in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, a good example would be uh, in that sort of chapter two, when, you know, the, the sheriff and his deputies show up to the church and, you know, they're, they're looking over the crime scene and the sheriff squats down next to, we're just going to call her the bride for now um squats down next to the bride and is looking at her only when he's looking at her and you're looking from his point of view you actually see through his sunglasses and i never noticed that until now yeah i uh i i mean that's one good example of many different visual treats and and to be honest i don't know what i picked on before versus now uh it's a bit of a blur in terms of memory because there were some things where i'm like i thought this happens but it didn't happen and like i don't know if it was just my expectations or what like with the the big fight scene against the uh, crazy 88 for some reason i thought for sure she was going to crash through that glass floor and then it didn't happen yeah i i don't remember that happening so i mean and and i don't remember thinking that that happens well there's like another Maybe maybe it's her fight against uh, Vernita, uh, aka Cottonmouth, when she you know they they break through the glass table or. No, I think what it is, I think it's just a lot of movies. I've seen way too many movies that do really poor foreshadowing, and it's almost mm-hmm. always if you see something that there's going to be a fight and they're near something incredibly breakable, they're going to break it, um, <laughs> and so that idea of you know dancing around fighting you know on a, a partially glass floor and someone's swinging a really heavy metal ball on a chain i'm just like oh yeah that's gonna crash the floor and then fall through like i just knew in my head that it was gonna happen but it was just more like training from other movies that made me think it not <laughs> necessarily that i really remembered it so that was kind of fun to have things keep me on my toes so i didn't know what was gonna happen where but yeah like the 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 color, the visual style, a lot of the different choices that happened. Um, I mean, really, I really, really was into the movie. And I mean, I'm someone who, even though I do enjoy 
uh, action movies and and martial art movies and all and, and anime and all these things i'm never really looking for gore and blood and over the top like uh versions of that and yet in this movie the way it was done the the nods that were there to so many different genres and you know doing the over the top stylization of the fountains of blood spring out of people helped make it almost feel i don't know if i'd say artistic but it really if it would have been made to be more realistic i think it would have been more brutal where this was more just like overly stylized yeah i i could see that um i, I think that the going sort of more natural with the blood would have even taken something away from this uh in terms of how the audience enjoyed it i think that the the geysers of blood were were almost necessary for how certain shots line up and and how certain shots are done like a, a good example would be the the anime or the the animated uh sequence for oren when she uh you know, she stabs the Yakuza, you know, crime lord, and, you know, she pulls the knife out and is just sprayed with blood and then her silhouette behind her on the wall in blood. I think that that whole thing, it, without the the geyser of blood, obviously you wouldn't have that, but to keep it through the, the live action stuff uh, really lent to a, a, a sort of a, a consistency throughout the rest of the movie yeah and i think what was kind of cool is like one thing that's different like the first time around versus now uh, when i first watched this or maybe last watched it whatever like a long time ago i felt like the movie was more disjointed and i think maybe that was just because of all the different styles and all the different color schemes and all the different like you know literal switching between is this a western is this you know a <laughs> a martial arts movie is this animated is this, you know all these different like it just kind of seemed to bounce around and now i didn't have that feeling whatsoever it felt extremely cohesive and and very well told and like there was no confusion there was no feeling of just feeling out of place and in fact that flashback anime sequence uh that you were talking about you know where telling the the origin story uh you know for oren like not only did I appreciate that they treated her character in that villainy way where, you know, they do the flashback and show where she comes from and all these different things to build that up. But I feel like that was almost a gateway to the rest of the movie in terms of the stylized violence that it just it turned it up a notch, but it was done in an animated style. And so you go, OK, well, it's not that crazy because it's not actually happening to people. It's just that, you know, that certain, you know, uh, anime you know extreme violence crazy blood that doesn't make sense kind of thing happening but like mm -hmm. once once that happened in this you know flashback scenario you know under the lens of a imaginary sequence almost um as you move forward from there then we see that the the violence does match that tone and even get a bit crazier at times um and so there's just something about it that's very purposeful that's very deliberate in in the visual medium like like I said, normally, it's something that I wouldn't exactly cheer about. I don't really have to hide from it either. But it that in and of itself would not make me go, oh, it's an awesome movie. There's tons of blood and gore. Oh, you'll love it. It's like, nah, I don't care. But like, there was enough story um, and just the, the progression was so good that these sequences that were just 
completely drenched in fountains of crazy blood, um, body parts flying all over the place. Um, it just seemed somehow to fit and to make sense, and it just followed and filled in all the beats that were going on in the story. And you even get sort of a ramp up with that, because, you know, we, we open up and she's pulling up to uh, Vernita's house, and we get a pretty violent fight scene, but it's not this, you know, blood spewing kind of deal. Like, it's it's what you would sort of expect from a hand-to-hand knife fight scene and even even the scene in the hospital when she she kills the the trucker and then buck who's here to fuck uh he you don't get that either and you even sort of lack blood at a certain point when she slices into his achilles tendon which by the way still fucks me up i can still feel that that without actually (laughs) feeling it like she slices his achilles tendon i'm like ah um, you don't get like a, a bunch of blood coming out of the back of his leg. It's just like, oh, slice, and he's on the ground. I mean, the way they ramp into the violence, they really do take it at the slow pace, almost like they're tricking you uh, mm-hmm. as to what you can expect until things all of a sudden become just absolutely over the top insane. Because, yeah, like that whole scene, and it's like if there's someone who you want to see get their head smashed in a door you know buck is certainly a, a guy that i'm not going to feel sorry about that uh, absolutely um, not but at the same time they kind of backed away at the last second and you heard it and like you saw you know like but she kept flipping to the side when she did so like they didn't linger on it for violence sake they didn't they didn't have it his head explode like a pumpkin with blood filling mm-hmm. up the room they didn't do any of those things yet you know like that wasn't it was it was like it's just you slowly get to it and it's like that transition into the uh the the flashback and anime i really do feel like that's when that the door's unlocked and then it's like okay now we're we're not playing anymore we'll uh yeah <laughs> we're not we're not pulling any more bloody punches exactly it, but there's a lot of really careful or maybe even obsession uh, or obsessive attention um that's paid to those details in the movie the the choreography especially the musical timing and the musical selection um even the blood geysers like everything is exactly how quentin tarantino wants it to be and that's that's yeah. kind of the the hallmark that you get like we sometimes we watch a movie and you can sort of tell when you have a lazy director or or someone who's willing to just sort of let things be the way that they were shot and i you almost get the impression with most quentin tarantino movies but this maybe especially that they they had to have done you know dozens of takes for some of these scenes just because it wasn't exactly what quentin tarantino wanted yeah no i agree i mean you definitely see a preciseness and a level of commitment to setting a scene uh, in almost every single scene that is not simply something that's just blocked out generically and then people are going to do what they're going to do and just let the stunt people go at it it feels like he probably knew every choreographer fight choreographer every stunt person and like was personally in the mix making sure everything was done in a certain way and you know like Mm -hmm. like it really felt very tangible especially in this movie i want to jump to the okinawa sequence for a second when she first arrives there and and i am the the back and forth between hanzo and the bride it's some of the best dialogue in this movie like it's just it's playful and it's uh, it's 
fun. And like you, even when Hanzo's yelling at his uh, assistant, it's you. You just you have to laugh and and kind of giggle at the whole thing. It's just great. I don't have to giggle. You do. I okay. demand it. I require it. You will giggle. <laughs> there you go. Good boy. Uh, no, like. Uh, uh, even like when when she's still playing coy and like not really letting on what her intentions are, and then you know he takes her up to uh, where his his blades are and is you know pointing out the, the differences and things like that, and he writes Bill on the window, and then she wipes it off. Like that entire sequence was just honestly for me. It's if you don't count like the hardcore action scenes, it's probably the best part of this movie for me i i i mean i think that's a a great like i don't know how to phrase it but like a i was gonna say change of pace but that's not i mean even though it's correct it colloquially it sounds like i mean something else but uh the the way sometimes you get movies where they'll have uh sequences you know like where they you set it to of music and there's a dance number or sometimes there'll be you know training montages or things that go on and and like a lot of times they're done in this kind of awkward way that makes you cringe a bit, even though they're trying to make it seem very important and deeper or, or whatever that might be. Um, and here, this this really isn't that at all. And her, her the process of waiting and, and that that like stepping back from the action and letting that part of the story be told that the Hatari Hanzo sword becomes its character uh, throughout Volume One. Um, it, it's really another level of, of the movie that was just really interesting to see unfold this time it was and the, i think that there was one thing that i sort of wished i would have gotten out of that scene that i didn't and it's not a huge glaring thing but i and maybe this is one of those things like you you know you said oh i i thought i remembered you know the falling through the the glass floor i thought i remembered a sequence of them actually forging the sword and we didn't get that. Mm. And maybe it's in volume two. I'm not sure, but it's, it's definitely not in this movie. Well, I mean, we'll have to see what happens because I can't, uh, I'm not sure beyond that either. Yeah. Now I do, I do think just something that is not necessarily about the movie, but it is something I thought about. There's two different things I thought about that weren't directly related to the movie. And yet things in the movie were making me think about it. One's directly about the whole controversy with Uma Thurman and Quentin Tarantino that came out a couple of years ago. Um, Yeah. I did did want to bring that up at some point during this show. So yeah, it just, it made me just, again, just be aware of it. Um, I don't even know, you know, I think it might've been volume two when it happened, but whenever there was, you know, there's car crash and stuff. And so, um, but like, what she went through there and I'm watching the physicality of this this movie and knowing full well like all, you know all the different stunt people that are involved at different levels different points but knowing that there was considering uh the director considering his obsession of being all in and you know and doing everything meticulously um I have to imagine that Uma herself was also probably involved in a lot of the the physicality of the stunt work and what was going on um not every wire sequence not every flip off of a stairway or whatever it might be but you know being in the mix there and i just 
And I just have to wonder, not necessarily the entirety, because, I mean, of course, we don't know personally what went on between them and what level it was. And I'm not trying to call anyone out and say they're a bastard for doing this or, you know, that it's, you know, horrible or anything like that. It's just it reminded me of some of that physicality and what goes on and what's demanded of people, specifically actors and actresses. And, and, and it just it just there were different times throughout watching this movie that that thing just popped up in my head and wondered how much was just like, just keep doing it, just, you know, uh, you know, go for it because whether it's because you know, I have power over you or that's just implied because they are a big director or someone who who is in that position. But, uh, but yeah, I know I'm kind of rambling, but it was just one of those things where it just made me kind of wonder and just think what, what it would have been like on set and what would have been going on at that time. And, you know, maybe that was something that, it was just a bit of a theme or a feel and many other people there felt it throughout. It's like, don't question. You just do what you're told. Everyone's going to work 27 hours a day. Everyone's going to be in pain. It's going to be horrible. And we just go through it. Cause that's how it is. Or was it more personalized or directed towards one or more people? I don't know. It's just something I was thinking about. Well, so, and for those of you listening who maybe aren't familiar with what we're talking about. So in volume two, spoiler, uh, well, not spoiler, but when they were filming volume two, uh, there was a a car scene uh, where the the vehicle was not fully checked out or or something to that effect. And anyway, uh, Uma Thurman was in uh, she was in an accident, I think, and and was pretty badly injured or, or could have been badly injured, and decided to stop working with Quentin Tarantino at least for a while. Uh, and that's the sort of the news that was talking about. I was actually reading fairly recently that that may change uh according to oh where was it uh oh quentin tarantino was on a podcast called happy sad confused where he talked about uh sort of that whole situation and said that he had been recently talking with uma thurman uh about possibly doing that third installment of the movie um right the heavily and, rumored but never confirmed <laughs> volume three right exactly uh so that's something that may still happen but nobody's really holding their breath uh but it was it's definitely something that i would love to see uh the the idea i believe is that uh i keep saying her name but vernita green her daughter in the movie uh who if you guys haven't watched it yet please go back and watch it it's in the first like five minutes you see this uh her uh, vernita's daughter walks in as the bride kills her mother and the idea is she's now an adult and she's getting vengeance for her mother's death uh, the reason that people are so kind of up in arms about you know whether or not this movie is going to happen and, and really want it to happen is because one thing that quentin tarantino said a long long time ago was that um after he makes his 10th film he's retiring there's also been sort of speculation about what that really means because Kill Bill is intended to be a film, a single film. It's It just happens to be an installment. So people think that that sort of comes together as one single film and that that's sort of what they, they hope is the case. And what I kind of hope is the case because I would love to see uh, the rest of what Quentin Tarantino has uh kind of rattling around in his head but volume three presumably 
would be a part of that that Kill Bill film. It would all be one thing. Yeah, I've even heard, because this has been bounced around probably for, I don't know, 10 years, um, that this is going to happen. And the most recent thing after, I don't know when this was, like, again, one or two years ago, whenever he was giving the interviews and all these things came up when he was saying he was surprised because he talked to her and they were talking about the possibility of volume three and, you know, like all those things. Um, Like, I feel, I mean, I read a a few things, but it's been a while and I feel like, like it wasn't necessarily just about the actual event that happened and the accident and all that. But, but I think there was a lot of miscommunication perhaps where like Uma was going to try to get some sort of uh, revenge, so to speak, uh, by like kind of going after the possible people who hadn't, you know, taken care of the car properly or, you know, like all these different things that happened. Um, and like Quentin Tarantino, he was supposed to be like a character witness for her and like do like interviews and like provide footage that would back up what she had said. So it seemed like even though there were rumors of them fighting and her like, you know, grabbing her by the neck and all these things happening during the, during the filming of the movie, it also felt like afterwards that she was, looking to him to help support what she was claiming rather than being like a defendant directly. But maybe that didn't work out for one reason or another. And then it's, she felt betrayed by that. So it's like a very complex situation. And then all the stuff with Harvey Weinstein that like she went through personally, that Mm -hmm. wasn't tied to Quentin Tarantino, but like everything kind of got merged together in a lot of anger and, and a lot of the stories and articles that were posted were all like wrapping a million things together. Um, so, yeah, but it, it does certainly feel or seem like if there was ever going to be a volume three, that it certainly has a lot of demand and would have a lot of excitement for it. And I've even most recently heard, uh, you know, like Zendaya being cast as the daughter. Oh, um, that would be super cool. And I just think what a perfect I mean, I really do think that would be great casting. And um, so it's like I can just picture it and imagine like, you know, uh, Uma Thurman's the bride um not even being like the main point or the main character maybe you know from the viewpoint of being like a villain or not a villain but like definitely a uh antagonist but maybe kind of a protagonist at the same time just all the questions that would come because everybody was you know on her side as she sought vengeance you know against the people who you know attacked and almost killed her and killed her baby and almost husband and all that kind of stuff but um but yeah so it feels like there would be a great setup for that and quentin if if the thing you're waiting for is a right-hand man to help make get it done i'm your guy i will recommend anthony and (laughs) he should be the guy that does it all right so the second i said there were two things that was kind of one thing um the second thing's a little more lighthearted, but it was brought to my attention recently while watching uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and I'm not going to talk about that movie now, but that's just when it was brought up to me that uh, this idea of, are you familiar with Quentin Tarantino's obsession with feet? I'm not. So there are different people who've observed and have made statements about, oh, does he have a little bit of a foot or shoe fetish or, you know, what's going on? And... And so far, um, I mean, I could say Once Upon a Time in Hollywood features a whole lot of feet uh, in it. Like, it's something that I have no, 
no attraction to nor disgust of they're just neutral territory for me so i normally don't notice such things um and then i've been told but not personally watched since that like in either all or most of his movies you see a large emphasis on feet and 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 that happening all throughout them and so just having that in my head i kept it in mind watching this and there's there are quite a few very foot emphasized shots in this not so not that much bare feet um but i i give it a pass and not say it's weird or doesn't belong because i mean especially in sword fighting a lot of the positioning and movement comes from how you have your feet placed and how you rooted and how you move so sure. to have close-ups on the feet as they're walking but uh i did notice with uh uh you know good old what's her face uma nope Oren. not Oren. um Ah, uh, Oren. I was like Oren, but anyway, oh, yes. uh, the, Oren. there were a few different times where they uh, showed her and like kind of because um, I thought, you know, partly it's building her character because she's wearing traditional Japanese dress and has the, the, the box sandals with the socks and things. And sure. And shows her when she's hopping up on the table and scooting along. And it was kind of funny, you know, like, but at the same time, it was folks there. Then later when she fought her at at, uh, when uh, the bride fought her uh, near the end of this, um, where they take a really long time of her sliding out of her her sandals and then walking into the snow. But and again, it's one of those things where I don't think there's anything negative. I don't think this is a weird thing it just amuses me that i am noticing a lot of different scenes that really zoom in real tight on on the feet and make that part of the story even um i appreciate it in that fight scene because that's that whole extra level of you know if i was going to fight someone having just socks on stepping into the snow would it not that, like that just feels weird to me but hey what are you gonna do it's, I mean, it's got to be better than those box sandals like yeah they're not very good for walking or, or for fighting at least i would have to imagine i've never fought in box sandals like that no neither have i usually all of my samurai sword fighting Are takes regular place sandals. in regular flip-flops yeah. or like maybe a, a smart loafer um maybe even like a boot but never in box sandals I remember that one time you got in that samurai sword fight and you were wearing a boot, one boot, with with both your feet stuck in it and you were just hopping around. That was hilarious. I can't believe it was, you still killed that guy. Dude, it was a personal challenge. He 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 said I couldn't do it and I did it and now I have his head. So who's laughing my favorite, now? My favorite part of that fight, you remember? Yep. Is when you told him to hold on a second, and out of your pocket you pulled a peach, and you just ate that peach while he was standing at, you know, ready just to attack, and you're like, nope, nope, give me he another was, second. He and was so ate, confused. It took you like 10 minutes to eat that peach. I would have had well, it, like 20 seconds, I would have been done. It was big. So the thing about that peach is I got it it's from... a giant peach. It is. Uh, well, I mean, so this guy named James gave James. it to me uh, <laughs> when, we, when I was... Uh, uh, I was at Grand Junction, Colorado, and they have these peach orchards there, and they have giant peaches. Yeah. And so, like, that's where I got it. It's very juicy. It's very messy. It takes a long time to eat. So, like, that's that's just, you know, that's why it took so long. He was really confused by the whole thing. Uh, he started I'm yelling still at one point. I mean, most people are. I mean, I think it's cool that, that you ended up getting married, and you got a kid, and you guys live in the rest of that peach, and that's, like, your home. 
and like you had to drag to Utah and like, I mean, it's a nice story. Um, it ends up, you know, kind of everything's normal in the end. You just live in a, you know, a giant peach home and, and Hey, I paid know, good money for that peach. You, well, you actually, you traded a whole bunch of puzzles that you inherited they were like, okay. I mean, they're a thousand piece puzzles and those are hard, but you just traded a whole bunch of puzzles for this giant peach. Don't Look, make it sound like you were throwing actual money around. Well, but one man's currency is another man's puzzles. And speaking of currency, we're here to talk about Quentin Tarantino's movie Kill Bill Volume 1. Yes, that we are. And so to transition right back into this movie... um. Did you have, I mean, you talked about kind of what your favorite, you know, moment might be outside of like the big fight stuff, but like, was there any particular characters or people you connected to here that maybe you hadn't had such a connection to before or? Uh, I mean, it's a very minor character in the, the sort of greater scheme of things, but um, Hanzo's assistant, Hattori Hanzo's like, assistant slash employee who was yelling at like that's me i'm like fuck leave me alone i'm watching my whatever you know that's he's he's probably who i relate to the most that's Uh, funny just like leave me alone um yeah i don't think that i don't think that there's really many other characters that we even really get to interact with anyway so i mean for me i feel like the character who was very tertiary and still is tertiary, but like that I enjoyed a lot and wish that there was a bit more, uh, would be Gogo. Gogo was fantastic. And like, I, I would have wanted I, to see a bit more craziness out of her. Sure. Yeah. I, I loved her fight scene. I think that it, it probably would have been more interesting for the story if she had lived and, and maybe even gotten away. Uh, like, you know the the rest of the crazy eighty eight and eventually Sophie, and then she could train the kid of. Oh, uh, see that would be yeah. that, that would be a great sort of closed circle right there for sure. Ah, uh, yeah, movie magic. You never know. Maybe mm-hmm. she does come back. Maybe she does. Maybe those maybe those nails. Uh, you know they didn't hit anything too major in there. I mean, if you think about it, for all of the different things that happen in this movie, like. You could have a lot worse done to you and come out of it alive. You could be beat up by four assassins and shot in the head and still make it. So, you know, getting a couple of nails to the side of the head, you know, that that probably caused enough pain and disorientation to, you know, pass out for an hour or so or whatever that might be. But come on, she's alive. Yeah, I buy that. I would definitely buy that. How about that soundtrack? Oh, it's excellent. I I, really I still listen it. to that soundtrack from time to time. Like there's there's an extended version of that Santa Esmeralda song, the the uh, the one that's playing when uh, the bride and O'Ren are fighting. Is that just Bang Bang? No, 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 no. Um, the uh, what's it called? Uh, Don't let me be misunderstood. Oh, okay, yeah. Gosh, I've... there's like a 13 minute cut of that song somewhere that <laughs> I, had, I I had found it on the internet somewhere and i had it like on an old ipod and and now i think the longest version i can find is like an eight minute version but it's such a good song and every time i hear it like anytime i hear any of these songs like i I, i'm immediately transported to that scene uh you know with the 
like that's immediately it's the the walk down the hallway like like there's so there's so much going on from from a musical standpoint the actual soundtrack and the songs the 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 sound editing, the sound effects, the orchestration, the the bride theme, you know, like all of these things add so much character to this. I mean, the fact that you have, you know, that you're going back and forth between, you know, kind of hip hop techno to like classic bluesy, jazzy country kind of music to like mm. just the, the, and like the, the actual, the, the soundtrack and the score, you know, borrowing from Westerns and borrowing from, you know, like some of that techie kind of grunge. And like, there's just so much happening that it was really a lot of fun uh, to listen to, to know you're going, you're jumping back and forth between, you know, like Isaac Hayes and Nancy Sinatra and like, uh, you know, Rizzo's like in the mix. And it's just, it's, it's a lot of fun. And it, it really like, it's one of those movies that's pretty high up there for accentuating uh, the world that you're inhabiting while you're watching the movie. Yeah, it's it's something that uh, you could probably say this for any of Tarantino's movies. It's he he really like nails down the uh, the musical portion of it. Like he, yeah, I mean, especially that's... if you look back at like Jackie Brown. Oh or, yeah, that's uh, great. Pulp Fiction. Like, there's just there's moments that match up perfectly with the music that he chose. Yeah. I mean, that's a great example. Like, I mean, maybe I'd have to think about every movie of his, but Jackie Brown and Pulp Fiction, definitely. And I mean, I just remember and Jackie Brown between like Johnny Cash and Bill Withers and, uh, you know, just like there were all of these, like so much soul and so much sass and just so much uh, attitude that like it's one of the reasons that uh that movie just sticks out to me in pulp fiction it's almost almost to a ridiculous degree to the point where the soundtrack became so iconic on so many different levels that it in some ways it overshadowed the movie at times so yeah absolutely he he certainly does put a lot of effort and and teams up with wh- whoever you know helps develop that part of the the writing tying it to the music and the the timing the blocking and the editing and everything it really comes together well yeah for sure what else did you have? Well, I mean, I, I do have a Quentin Tarantino type question um, that I was thinking about that's tied to my enjoyment of this movie, but it's not specifically about the movie. Do you mind if I jump into it? This is our show. We can do whatever the fuck we want. Oh, boy. Well, in oh, that yeah. case, let's get back to that giant peach orchard. Sure. So, oh, wait, no. Um, We'll skip that for now. But I do want to ask... As this is officially our podcast about Volume One, um, the first uh, of these movies, that like I don't know about you, but I almost feel like this movie or movies are kind of a turning point in Tarantino's career. Not necessarily good, better, best, or anything like that, but I feel like he was a bit more independent and kept getting more and more recognition. You know, like there was a lot that was going on in terms of what. Uh, what Quentin, you know, what was going on for him in terms of directing and stuff like that. And, and you know, one might make the argument that, you know, Pulp Fiction might be the movie, you know, that, that really took the, that, that turned things. I almost feel like that, that definitely is what made him huge and stand out in the scene. But I feel like Kill Bill is where he kind of took another turn creatively and started 
going in a different type of direction in some of his movies. Um, what I want to do is, as we're on volume one, I want to look backwards um, at some of the, the movies that led us to this point. I think it's probably four, four main movies anyway that he directed. Um, and of those four, I'm curious if you can tell me, do you have a favorite in that group? That's a great question. So for those of you who aren't sure which movies uh is referring to, so oh, yeah. pre-Kill Bill Volume 1, we're talking about Jackie Brown. We're talking about Four Rooms. We're talking about Pulp Fiction. We're talking about Reservoir Dogs. Man, see those... That pre-Kill Bill era of Quentin Tarantino films are, are probably the most standout for me um and probably my my most loved not that i don't love movies like inglorious bastards and and uh hey Death we'll Proof. get into that later we will, right we will. now but what i'm saying about is these four pick one pick one can you do it i can maybe um it's so hard to do well maybe let's maybe we go from it from a different angle and maybe we agree on what's the one out of these four we should get rid of first if i had to get rid of one it would be four rooms. Oh yes, absolutely. That's by far the the weakest of these three movies. Yes, for sure. So I Reservoir Dogs is is such a great film. I'm probably gonna go Pulp Fiction though. I think that that was my first entry into Quentin Tarantino's uh, library, and uh, it's probably the one that has stuck with me the most. Um, I I definitely have a deep love for that movie. So yeah, I'm gonna go with Pulp Fiction with probably if, if I had to rate the 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 three of them, I would say probably Pulp Fiction with Jackie Brown is a very 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 close second, and then Reservoir Dogs is uh, picking up third place. See, I feel like I can appreciate Reservoir Dogs. I think it's a good movie, but I never felt super attached to it. And then with Pulp Fiction, I know you won't be pleased to hear this, but at the for a while i had the feeling that it's a bit overrated um <laughs> i know i almost feel like we should break apart and and you know are we making january all about quentin tarantino but like um <laughs> we'll we'll, of, ju- we'll jump into tarantino's entire yeah. library at some point but i ahead. do feel at some point in the future because it's been a long time since seeing pulp fiction and i feel i sometimes there's that like hipster wannabe part of me that when something gets hyped so much and this used to happen to me a lot before than it does now but when something gets really hyped something gets talked about a lot i build up my expectations and then like sometimes i get let down and that's what happened to me back in the like 90s or whenever and the first time i saw pulp fiction it was just it just fell a bit flat on me and i think i somehow had built up and built up and heard so many people talk about it being the best movie that's ever existed going on and on and on about it and then when i finally saw it I was just like, eh. <laughs> and so um, I've only seen it twice and I saw it like when it first came out and then probably about two years later, I watched it with some friends who were really excited about watching it. I'm like, well, I guess I'll watch it again. I didn't hate it. I just wasn't, I didn't love it. And I watched it then. I was kind of left with this whole, eh, okay, it was fine. <laughs> and so now that, you know, another 20 some years has passed like i'm i'm quite curious what my reaction would be whereas with kill bill i was very excited and really eager to jump in and thinking oh i love it this can be great 
with Pulp Fiction, I feel like there's a lot on the line. I might absolutely love it now, or I might still feel like it's overrated. So that could be very interesting. And for that reason, um, I put it kind of on the same realm as Reservoir Dogs, like in terms of liking it. And for me, Jackie Brown is just the bee's knees. Like it is outstanding. Spoiler alert, it's my favorite of all of his movies by far. Um, <laughs> I absolutely love that movie. Um, and uh, the, the writing is so snappy and so intelligent. And the characters are brilliant. And the, the, the mood and the feel of it's great. The music, everything about it is just wonderful. Um, and so I would have to then, of course, of, of these movies, it would be number one by far. Yeah, I I, I completely... Like I said, it's a very, very close second for me. Um, yeah. It's 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 almost hard to really rank them in that way. But it's uh, Jackie Brown's is a, a solid choice for number one, so I don't blame you for that at all. With what you were saying about you know almost having it seem overrated, like that's we talked about this way back when we did uh, the Crow. Yeah, like, I I didn't love the Crow in the nineties. I I didn't think that it was all that great. I thought that. It was way, way hyped up, and you know, I've I've felt that way about other movies too, like Grease. Um, I absolutely, for more than half my life, have loathed Grease, uh, simply because everyone else talked it up so much and wouldn't well, shut up about it and wouldn't stop singing the fucking songs. And I just you've heard I'd it here. Had it. Anthony officially thinks Pulp Fiction is the same as Grease. That's not true. Um, that is not true. I think true. you just said You're it. You're twisting my words. You are if twisting it doesn't my sound words, like that, everyone if it doesn't sound up. like that. Everyone back it... up a minute. <laughs> You're twisting my words. Okay, okay. I agree that you do the editing. That's right. And you can make it sound like you didn't actually say that, but if it sounds <laughs> suspicious to you viewers, if you hear a little hiccup, if you, you probably should listen to this podcast two or three times and see if you can detect when Anthony changed the fact that he said the grease is as high quality as Pulp Fiction. That is it not may at take all a few what tries. I said, you son of a bitch. <laughs> but this is this is too funny to take out. I'll know. God damn um, it. Then. So, uh I, I do think that if we follow any kind of format in our next uh, podcast when we get into volume two, if we do also look forward and try to rank things, it's going to be a lot harder for me to pick like what's my favorite since then, because I don't have a clear definitive favorite as much as, as far and high as I esteem Jackie Brown. I mean, there are some things after volume two that I really, really enjoyed quite a lot, but not one that just rises to the absolute top. And we'll get into that. And, yeah. and I think that, you know, we will have some time to think about that, too. So I think that's probably a good note to go out on. Um, obviously, I don't think that either of us could say by any stretch of the imagination that you hated this movie, correct? I just want to make sure everyone's clear on that. I came into the movie having a pretty high opinion of this movie, and I expected it was going to stay very high. And I'm pleased to report, I think it went up a little actually it even got even better uh in this watching after it's been 10 plus years or however long it's been um so yeah by no stretch of the imagination would i say this is bad it's not a perfect movie um but i have no complaints nothing i want to dig into and talk about i mean i honestly you know our typical format uh uh would be to you know next week 
you know, start recording for volume two and then watch it and then record a second part. And it's going to be difficult. We'll have to see whether I can hold <laughs> off because I really want to just jump into volume two. I don't want to wait another week. So we'll we'll leave that as a cliffhanger for uh, the listeners to guess whether or not you or myself or both of us were able to wait or if we were able to hold out a week. Yep. So uh, keep it here and uh, make sure you listen to our next episode to find that out. Uh, I want to thank everyone for listening uh, and sticking with us every week. We release new episodes every Monday. So drop in and listen as we distill another favorite from our past. And again, we, we often will touch on music from these movies, whether it's the soundtracks or the scores or, or sound effects, whatever it might be. Like all these elements are very important to us. And what, you know what also is important to us uh, is the music we choose to make our theme song in our podcast, which, of course, at this point, you know, is Destroying the Evidence by Semaphore. Uh, you guys, if you haven't yet, uh, give them a chance, you know, something new to listen to on a, a Monday or whenever, you know, get them on Spotify or wherever uh, you get yourself some music and, and give them a good listen. Um, and, and as we go through this, whether you're a huge Quentin Tarantino fan, uh, whether you're somewhere in the middle or whether you wish we would just get on to some other movies that, you know, we haven't touched on yet. Tell us about it. Hop on, on Facebook uh, from Memory Distillery or send us an email at memorydistillery at gmail.com. And, and also our tweet, tw- Twitter, tweet, twart us, T- yeah. uh, TMD pod. I mean, we've got the avenues. Um, and so, you know, we're inviting you to be a part of the process. And sometimes we were just talking about this. I think it was today or yesterday. I can't remember. It's all a blur. But uh, we have one fan who is always making a lot of comments. And I'm like, you know what? We really should see maybe get him on for a segment and a show because he always has something to say. Um, and if you want to be that person, uh, make your presence now. Yeah. Get at um, us. So th- we are definitely open to that sort of stuff. I mean, and, and for all of you listening again, it's been a great holiday season. We're emerging back into some semblance of normalcy. Um, and so we just want to thank you again for listening. And I'm. And I am Anthony Verneri. And this has been the Memory Distillery. Stay classy. Stay cl- Tokyo. To- Tokyo. I, I forgot the name of the, 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 the sword guy. And I was gonna say. Oh, Hattori Hanzo. Stay classy, Hattori Hanzo. No, nope. still, no, still no. not it. Son of a. Oh.